Thank you for listening to Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti, recorded live at the Sat Yoga Ashram in Costa Rica. To join us for a life-changing meditation retreat, or to make a donation to support this transformational work, please visit our website, www.satyoga.org. To access more teachings or guided meditations from Shunyamurti, please visit the members section of our website or our YouTube channel, Sat Yoga Institute. Namaste. So I was asked to speak about goodness tonight. So I think that's a good place to start. It's always good to speak of goodness. First of all, let me ask you a question. In the book of uh, Genesis, Breshit, it is uh, written that the original sin was the eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But why would knowing the difference between good and evil be a sin? Don't we want people to know the difference between good and evil? What, what, what made that into a sin that would cause them to be expelled from the Garden of Eden? Today we'd consider it a virtue, probably a rare virtue, in fact. Who has some ideas? Yes, Carmen. I think that everything was good until they ate from that tree. Ah. And they chose to live a life of duality. Uh -huh. Okay, beautiful and profound answer. Before they ate of that tree, they realized that everything is good. There is no evil, because everything is from God. And so it was the belief in evil that created evil. That's why it was a sin. They brought evil into the world by the belief that there is such a thing. That's why we have to be very careful what we believe in. Because this is our dream and our belief will produce a self-fulfilling prophecy. In ancient Greece, the philosopher Plato, who was a disciple of Socrates, who in turn was a, a disciple of a great uh, woman sage named Diotima, or Diotima, she's sometimes pronounced, but I think it's Diotima. But in any case, uh, she was a teacher who was uh, one who came through both the Pythagorean and the Orphic mystery schools, and therefore was very uh, deeply in a state of wisdom about the nature of non-duality. Now, we owe a great debt to Plato for writing down these teachings because 
he declared that the name of God is the good. Now for him, God was not like the Judeo-Christian God. God is the one. God is beyond any images or uh, cannot be considered either personal or impersonal, but God is the one beyond all dualities and therefore of all differentiation. But the name of God, the essence of God is goodness. All goodness comes from God. Now Christ said the same thing in one of the Gospels. They called him good and he said, Why callest thou me good? Only the Father is good. So it is clear from both traditions that goodness derives from one source, all goodness. Now the problem that happened in Western culture is that Plato's disciple betrayed his teachings. Uh, Aristotle betrayed the teachings of Plato. Aristotle looked at this idea of the good and he said, this is nonsense. He says, what, what use is it to us to know that God is the good? That doesn't tell us anything because we don't know God. So what we have to know is what is good for us, for humans? What should we do? How should we live? All of that. And so instead of the good being a noun that signifies God, it became an adjective. This would be good, that would be good, Let's, it's good to do this, it's good to do that. And goodness became reduced to a pragmatic uh, reflection upon uh, actions that were considered only within the phenomenal plane. And goodness was cut off from the source. It became relativized, the same as happened by eating of the tree of good and evil. Aristotle ate of that tree and uh, caused a deviation within Western culture. Because Aristotelian logic was what was followed. Plato was repressed for a long time in the West, whereas Aristotle uh, re retained his influence. But it wasn't really until uh, Marsilio Ficino uh, translated Plato uh, that was brought by the Arabs into the Western world in the that, that was the beginning of the Renaissance that Plato was again available in Europe so we have to understand why this is so important But once the Aristotelian modality and once the, the modality of the question of good and evil became in the Bible linked with God, because if you follow the commandments, you're good, and if you don't, you're evil, uh, this uh, created a, a, a dualistic conscience in which everyone felt 
bad, if not evil, because they couldn't live up to all of those commandments. Once they were in an ego state of consciousness, it was not possible to love thy neighbor as thyself. And it wasn't possible to love God with all thy heart, thy soul, and thy might, because you were loving other things on the ego level. And in fact, you couldn't even love God because God was unknowable. And to the ego, you can only love what you know and, and you can understand. And so that left God out. And therefore it left absolute goodness out of the picture completely. But there's an interesting story that is told that originally all of the angels were created by God, naturally. But God gave the angels free will because free will, freedom, is a part of goodness and of God's goodness to grant free will. Otherwise, we'd be robots, right? Without free will, what would life be? So the angels were all created with free will and some of them, a lot of them, chose freely to become autonomous from God. They chose to use their free will to gain freedom from God. And they became known as devils. Devils are fallen angels. What are they fallen from? From obedience to God. So the angels who remained angels were angels because they freely chose to give up their autonomy to become obedient to the Supreme One. And that obedience is a truer freedom than the illusion of autonomy. But the desire for autonomy became the leading motivation of the ego. And that became autonomy from goodness, from God, even from law, even from morality. And that is what has led to the ever steeper fall down the mountain of goodness into a state of evil where human beings would abide with and as the devils. So the question of autonomy became one of the leading uh, subjects of reflection throughout the period of medieval culture and modern culture, of course, that valorized it as the ultimate uh, principle of a, of a life to choose freedom, to even choose your own essence because existence precedes essence for the existentialists and, and we choose how we're going to live. We are autonomous. We make our own decisions. But the problem for the ego is 
It doesn't decide when it's going to be born or to whom it's going to be born. The soul may have some say in it, but even then it's a matter of karma. The soul doesn't really have free will to choose. The only person, uh, according to at least Christian myth, who was ever born in a state of autonomy was Christ, because, of course, he was his own father. And so he chose Mary as his partner and then became the son. That doesn't happen to too many of us. And so life begins not in a, with an autonomous choice that I'm going to choose to be born in this family at this moment and uh, I will... Uh, make every choice my own actively, I will decide it all. No, it begins with a passive uh, discovery of oneself growing in the womb of a stranger. At least from the ego level. Now, the ego tries to make up for that by at least deciding the time of its actual egress from the uterus and its struggle through the birth canal to be born. But these days, cesarean sections have become the norm for births. So even that is taken away. And, and many, many egos are furious that they didn't get to choose when they were born. And others simply collapse into passivity and say, if I can't even choose this, then, you know, let Big Brother take care of me, then it's all meaningless. And so you have two very extreme different psychologies of humans who are born by C-section, and, and there's been a lot of studies of that. It's very interesting. How many of you have been born by C-section? Uh-huh, anyone else? Okay. That's all? Everyone else is not, or you don't know? Okay, that's, if you were born by C-section, you are probably either a rebel or you're, uh, you're very passive and, uh, and, and want life to take care of you. I assume the ones here are more on the rebellious side of the spectrum. But in any case, because life begins not with autonomy but heteronomy, uh, one is always lacking the, uh, the, the prime sense of this is my life and, and I determine it because how can it be your life if you had no say even in uh, the conception or the choice of the parents? So... The idea of freedom is not an idea that it can be consistently held by the ego. And that's another reason for its rage. And of course it discovers later on in life that it can't really be autonomous about anything because it always has to acquiesce to the desire of the big other in some way. It has to adapt to society even if it adapts as an oppositional kind of uh, 
psyche, but still it's uh, adapting and, uh, and, and usually finding others who are oppositional and forming gangs and uh, other kinds of collusions. So it's not really autonomous in any way. But as an ideology, the ideology that I'll never be obedient has become the mainline thrust of the ego's flag that it carries. And that is supported politically and socially. Never be obedient. The Jews use the Holocaust to not be obedient and follow the laws today of international law. Why? Because never again. We were obedient. We went into the ovens. We didn't fight. Never again. We won't be obedient. And it's used by many, many peoples to justify uh, breaking uh, the, the laws. Nowadays you see the U.S. breaking every treaty the breaking of law, the refusal to be bound by one's own commitments is the proof of one's autonomy today. But is that real autonomy? Or is that simply the destruction of the social contract and the loss of trust that destroys the possibility for reason, for meeting of the minds, for the capacity to resolve conflicts without war. So we have a world that has abandoned God, abandoned the good, and abandoned obedience to the good, to the law, to the Dharma, in the name of freedom. Freedom for the ego to enjoy its own jouissance, its lawlessness, its separation from God. And so no matter what the ego may give lip service to in terms of spirituality, it always wants to do it its own way. And the result of that, of course, is it remains an ego. Because that's the definition of an ego. It is a consciousness that has veered away from obedience to and therefore resonance with the supreme level of consciousness and wants to be on a tangent of its own. But so long as it's making its own decisions, which are not uh, under the sponsorship of God, it's creating bad karma. Because it doesn't have the God of wisdom to uh, consult with. It has sacrificed that for its autonomy. Even though that God abides within, the ego is cut off from it. That's the kosha nostra again. So we have a situation where we have cut ourselves off from goodness in the name of a false freedom. 
But that false freedom has become so ingrained as the structure of the ego that it's the basis of narcissism. And it's, the, it's a very difficult sanskara or tendency to overcome in a culture that valorizes that very trait. So if we go back to the idea that the angels who freely chose to be obedient to God, they remain as angels, they fly, they are the beings who remain as the purest supernal light, whereas the demons who have gone on their own have become dense and material because they have fallen into the identification with bodily vehicles, with separate consciousnesses. And each of us has to decide, am I on the side of the angels or the devils? To whom do I belong? Because although the ego wants to say, I belong to myself, I'm in charge of my life, the ego knows it's a bluff. It's not true, it's not real. The ego is inherently dependent and weak and confused and frightened. And it thinks that it can hold on to its autonomy by hoarding enough money that it can take care of things and buy whatever it needs and withdraw from having to, uh, uh, to join in to uh, a community, let's say, where one would have to give up some of one's autonomy in order to have harmony, etc. So, so capitalism is made for the anomic uh, tendencies of the ego where people, millions of people, live in a city and uh, don't meet each other, don't connect, remain totally alienated from one another and separated and of course now it's even more so with the internet where you don't even have to go out and meet anyone. And so the ego has cut itself off from relationality, from love, because the ego, once it chooses autonomy, cannot, give, cannot love, because if you love, you're surrendering your autonomy to another, aren't you? So it's created a problem for the ego that it cannot resolve within itself. Because of these two values of freedom and goodness that it has not been able to integrate. And in order to resolve the problem, we have to return to the understanding that the only source of goodness is God. But why is that? It's because only God is real. Everything else is false. And the false could not be good. It might look good, but it cannot be good because it's not real. It's an illusion. And the ego is an illusion, it's a construct. 
people do create autonomously their ego. They decide what style of clothes to wear and uh, you know what brand of beer to drink and what movies to watch. And you know, they, people's lives are mostly about style and how they will look to the other. And they live at a very superficial level trying to impress the other. But this is because there is no essence and no ground of being that they can stand on. So it's only when consciousness decides that it wants to use its freedom to become real that one then has to deal with the fact that to become real means to become good. It's nothing other than that. But to become good and real mean to become obedient to the law of the real. And that law requires letting go of the false, which is the ego. So, goodness requires egolessness. And it requires even the transcendence of the soul, because the soul is still not good. And it's only that surrender to the good that in turn is able to dissolve the illusion of the ego and soul. And the real appears as that which is empty of ego and because all the ego is is a stream of language that goes on in the mind a stream made up of several narratives that are the key stories that uh, an ego tells itself and tries to live out. Usually there's one main story and, and a, a few sub-stories, uh, but the plot always thickens because they can't be carried out, or if they are, the stories lead to disaster, and uh, the ego realizes that it's uh, not a sufficiently uh, uh, accurate author to be able to be the author of its life and its destiny, and life becomes unmanageable because the story turns out to be a, a false understanding of reality. And that misunderstanding that's based on the limited intelligence of the ego is never adequate to the challenges that life will present. And so it will always find itself in a cul-de-sac, a dead end that it has created for itself, thinking that this is a good way to live, but it always turns out not to be. Only when the ego recognizes and surrenders to that goodness that means giving up its own point of view, giving up its own right to decide what is good and what is not 
because it doesn't know and because it's very duality means that it has an illusory understanding of goodness. And in that surrender, the ego realizes or the consciousness realizes when the ego has at least come to a state of temporary surrender, which is the definition of meditation, that when the mind is silent and it's not producing its narratives, it feels the grace of the goodness of God. Goodness is when the ego is not. And when the ego is not, that goodness is not separate, is not other. It seems to be received from an other that indeed is other than the ego and other even than the soul. But when there is silence in the mind, then there is no otherness. The separation is created by the I-thought and the narrative based on the I-thought. When there is no I-thought, I'm doing this, and usually the I-thought is self-righteously uh, accompanied by, and I'm sure this is the best thing to do, I'm sure this is good and right and true and holy and pure, etc. But it cannot be so long as it's based on the I-thought. And this is why all religions have fallen into degradation. Because although they may have started with good intentions, we know where that road paving ends up. So it's only when we have given up our belief in the eye itself and the eye's capacity to figure anything out and becomes surrendered to and filled with the intelligence of that infinite power that one's life can become good. And that goodness is the goodness of God that is now the operating system of your life because you have let go of all the intermediary uh, identifications, whether of ego or soul, that have uh, created barriers to the full reception of the power, the wisdom, the bliss, but especially the goodness of God. And so all of the religions provide a, a superstructure of dharma, mitzvah, or commandments of some kind that are impossible for the ego to keep, like love your neighbor as yourself. but that with the intention of, uh, of following those commandments religiously, one comes to a point in one's life where one recognizes that the letting go of the ego is what religion is about. It's not the following of the commandments from the ego level because that again is a dead end. And
And if one does that act of surrender, you're called a saint. That's the technical definition of sainthood. But the surrender must be complete, such that the, the, the illusionary belief in duality between the one surrendering and the one surrendered to are different. That belief must also be surrendered. All beliefs must be surrendered. Because belief is a, a separation. If there's belief, there's a believer. And if there's doubt, there's a doubter. And every believer is always also a doubter. Because the ego cannot have total belief. Because its mind is split. And it's not even sure if its belief is good or evil. And so, to get out of the avidya, the ignorance that the ego inherently is in, because it doesn't know God, it's not sure, it's an agnostic. To become a true Gnostic, that can only happen from the consciousness that has shed the vehicles of ego and soul and the I thought that is the basis of them and is willing and able to abide in the silent presence of the Supreme Being and let its ego be completely washed away and for there again to be union with the Absolute. And for the Absolute there is only goodness because there is only being, the supreme being. It, the absolute, of course, is beyond being, but it is, it manifests as that beingness that is universal and not particular, but through the universality comes the singularity of absoluteness that is the essence of goodness. Goodness cannot be a property of the relative. It is an attribute and an expression of the Absolute. And so meditation, the whole purpose of it, is to go from relative consciousness to Absolute consciousness. But Absolute consciousness is the elimination of the instrument of conceptualization as its mode of dealing with reality. It's in the non-conceptual that the higher level of truth, because truth is part of goodness, and of nobility, and love and bliss, all of those are attributes that are interchangeable with goodness. Being, truth, unity, all of these, these are in the medieval philosophy of, of Aquinas and others, this was called the theory of uh, uh, interchangeability. That all of these terms, which were considered transcendentals because they were expressions of the nature of God, they, they were all equivalent. And therefore, if you have one, you've got them all. 
Goodness includes truth, beauty, love, wisdom, all of it. You could add a lot more verses to your song and, and it would go on much longer because God is much more than just the three you named. But all of those transcendental qualities are our qualities, our inherent qualities as angels. And our true nature is angelic. That's the real nature of the soul. The soul fell, not just the ego, but the soul's true nature, when it is obedient to the Supreme One, is to function as a, a being of light that is non-local, that can travel wherever it's needed in the service of God and obediently producing uh, whatever work God wants done, which is mostly about healing and performing miracles uh, to, to save those who are worthy, etc. And, and uh, the angels have a very important role in the cosmic uh, uh, social and political structure. Angels are real. But there are very few of them left because most have fallen now. And so if we want to be good, we have to realize we are fallen angels. And do we want to rise again or do we want to stay fallen? I don't think it's a good idea to choose to stay fallen. I, I think that there's a judgment ahead for those who choose that that won't be very um, uh, joyous. But that's everyone's own conscious that, conscience that will have to make that decision. But you do have free will and you can make the decision to rise again as a true angel, obedient to God and God's grace because God's goodness includes mercy and includes uh, uh, unconditional love and acceptance. You will be returned to the light and re regain all your powers that you gave up for the false autonomy. It, those powers are real. But... You have to be an angel to wield them. The ego can't wield them. That's one of the fail-safe mechanisms built into creation. Only those who are obedient to God's goodness will be given the powers uh, that otherwise could create a lot of problems. So, Goodness is the essential quality that we lack as egos, but the essential quality that we have as souls who are obedient to God and return to the angelic orders and uh, who will be readmitted into that august uh, club and, uh, and order. And there are two orders. There are warrior angels and healing angels. But... Uh, this is a, a reality. It's not just a metaphor or a, a, a crackpot religious idea. It's real. And I think many people have experienced angels at some time uh, in, in your life, either personally or you know someone who was perhaps saved from a, a certain death by an angelic warning or intervention of some kind. It happens if one is worthy of it. 
So it's pretty useful to have guardian angels on your side. I recommend that highly. But you're only going to get those bodyguards if you are at least an aspiring angel who is uh, uh, an apprentice in the club and uh, you will get some guidance to be able to rise up in the ranks. So goodness is about promotions within the ranks of the chain of being uh, until one gets as high up in the uh, command and control level of uh, management of the cosmos as one wants to go. But that promotion requires uh, that you give up your citizenship in, uh, in the demonic kingdom. You, there's no dual passports in uh, the heavenly realm. You've got to make your choice. And when you make your choice wholeheartedly, then the portals open to the celestial realms and the luminosity of the angelic presence uh, is uh, fitted for you so that you're able to uh, live in this world with the light from the other world that protects as an energy field around you and gives the ability to transmit healing energy as a deputy of the source of that light and love and power. So that's the, uh, the system that has always been in place. But there haven't been any uh, takers in Kali Yuga for this, uh, uh, this work. So at the moment, there are very few saints who can come marching in. Therefore, you can still be in that number. <laughs> but to be in that number, you have to uh, do what is necessary, which is to uh, give up your loyalty to the dark force known as the ego. When you do that, even in principle, something happens. And what happens is that the presence of God gives you the power to silence your mind. That's what it does. It's that power of silence that is the mark of goodness. Because in the silencing of the mind, you have access to the depths of infinite intelligence and power of God. The, the, the thinking process makes you one-dimensional because thoughts are always about the phenomenal unreality. Even if they're metaphysical ideas, they're still ideas that relate to an individual in the phenomenal world. So it's only the stopping of all ideation that leads you to goodness. Plato, you know, with his theory of ideas, of forms, 
he said that all ideas derive from the idea of the good. But the idea of the good is not an idea that can be grasped in language. Because it is the source of all ideas. And so you have to reach such a level of intelligence in which you have already internalized all the other ideas that the only idea that is left and that all of the ideas that you have grokked point to this one idea that's the source of all of the ones that you get and bingo, you reach the form of the good, the formless form of the good. This is the main reason to read uh, books written by people who have very high level ideas that derive most directly from the good because then by knowing where that idea came from you can hook on to the goodness that is transconceptual. That's why it's useful to read even one sentence by someone like Sri Ramana or some other liberated sage, because their words are direct emanations from the good. And if you can attune to the consciousness that has spoken those words or written them, you will then be in attunement. And if you can hold that note, you'll be able to be one with Ramana, who is run one with Shiva, and then you become a manifestation of goodness. So it's very simple, but it requires the purification of the intelligence to enable you to hold on to that transconceptual goodness without falling back into concrete thinking that leads to uh, out-of-control thoughts because they're, they're thoughts of the ego that is out of control. But those thoughts that are based on the good have no sense of separate individuality. They are transcendental ideas that bring you to the level of the transcendent in order to understand it accurately. Reaching the non-conceptual is a decision that one has to make. It's not so much a practice that requires uh, using your willpower to try to overcome the, the desire to think or, or to stop the chaos of, of thoughts arising independently, autonomously of your own desire. All you have to do, as Ramana said, is get rid of the I thought, just that one, and all of the rest have nothing to hold on to. And then, by asking the question, not verbally, but wondering intensely and one-pointedly, what is the self from which thoughts emanate and to whom they pertain? And then that state of goodness that is beyond all thought will be realized as yourself.
And in that realization, the power of dissolving the ego will be given. But if it's not fully given because one's uh, decisiveness was not one-pointed, because there were other fragments of the ego that said, no, nah, nah, not quite ready yet for that. And that can often happen at a subconscious level, even when you're in a very high state. Uh, then you have to have as total a faith and devotion and conscious surrender as possible to God, so that those other fragments that are deviant will be shepherded in, herded in like sheep, uh, to be offered to God as a sacrifice. That's the whole meaning of sacrifice and sacrificial fires, is to eliminate whatever fragments of consciousness have not become obedient to the One. And it's in that sacrifice then, and the burning of those tendencies, that the grace of goodness and power and bliss and all the transcendentals are given to you as attributes of your own being. This is the moment to reclaim our birthright. and to rise again into the angelic truth of our being by giving up the identification with the ego, with the body, with the enjoyments of the ego and with the frame of reference of the ego and adopt that absolute understanding of goodness as the only real. And then you become real. You become real and you become therefore eternal. You lose the discontinuity of consciousness that the ego faces. The ego dies, but the real self never dies. So if you're interested in eternal life, without karma and in the angelic or archangelic orders or beyond, this is the time to uh, apply at the recruitment station. Because the Supreme One needs helpers. Let's meditate for a few minutes. The floor is open for those who would like to comment or ask question. Yes, Carolyn. I've uh, read many words of, of wisdom, and I carry in my heart a few that uh, um, the truth shall set you free. Indeed. Another that 
stays in my mind, come out from amongst them. And I'd like to thank you for separating the truth from the lies, the ego from the good, to help us to understand where it's coming from. And also for helping us to come out from amongst them, for booting me into the cosmos. It was your destiny and good karma because you've been traveling, returning home and on this path for a long time with a great deal of good karma to your credit and that has given you the power to overcome all the impossible difficulties you've had to face and you've proved your heroism and now is the time to collect your reward. You mentioned about the ego fail safe in terms of powers, etc. Mm. However, from what I understand and from experience, um, for example, I'll use a, the Bon tradition in Buddhism, which is very much a, uh, a a sect that's based on magic, so to speak. Buddhism? It Bon. The oh, Bon. Bon, which uh -huh. is a sect of uh -huh. Buddhism. It's Actually, it was prior to Buddhism. Prior. Okay, yeah. it was prior, but it, it got yeah. integrated. Mm -hmm. um, and it's considered a lower vehicle because the hope of the higher practitioners is that it becomes a vehicle that helps them realize and realize their nature, their true nature. But they're capable of huge acts of what we would consider powers, um, yet they're not, it's still considered a lesser vehicle though. Yeah, I understand. There, there are yogis who get cities in, in every tradition. Sure, at, at a certain level you can get cities, but if you use them, if there is still an ego and it abuses it, it becomes black magic, it produces very bad karma, and it stops the, the liberation, because you have chosen to have powers as a separate being, not in obedience to God, and, and then they backfire on you, and... Uh, you, you don't want to be there in one, as one who has done that. It's not pretty, uh, the result of that. And I've, I've worked with a lot of magicians who thought they were white magicians, but turned out not to be because their ego contaminated their spells and their uh, uh, projections of energy, let's say. So uh, it, it is fail-safe in, in this sense that it's predetermined that that kind of thing will happen and it produces a learning. And in the same way that it's said about Mephistopheles that he does evil but he works the good. Whatever he does, that whatever the devil does, it will actually produce a benefit 
for those who are good and, and the result of karmic crash for those who abuse those powers. So it is fail-safe, even though it might not seem it to those in that intermediary uh, level of magic, I agree. And, and that's why it's very important to understand magic and what it really is. Because it's only the white magic that is God's miraculous uh, intervention that has uh, any use or, or that we should uh, approach at all. For me, my experience of God, and I haven't heard you define that yet, but that... Nor would you. Pardon? Nor would you. Well, for me, that's everything. Um, everything, without exception, including the apparent dark. Um, it's beyond everything. God is, God is beyond all of that. So, this pantomime of God needing our help, this what is that? It means that it is meant for you to realize that you are not a separate being from God, but you are in fact a manifestation of God. And it's that that will bring about a new kingdom of heaven. But the willingness to be an avatar of the supreme power means the willingness to dissolve the ego. And that brings you to a state of goodness because you are in unity with God. God is no longer an other. It's the elimination of the illusion of otherness and separation that is the help that enables the work of God to be completed. There are other questions that can be left, but one, I suppose, other question is that um, I experience a lot of phenomena a lot of what? Phenomena. Uh-huh. Um, and sometimes I just... It, it hits me that maybe this is just another layer of illusion of some kind. Yes. But I don't know to what purpose. I, I understand that... I don't know. If you're talking about non-ordinary phenomena, then the purpose is to awaken your consciousness to the fact that there are higher levels of consciousness than the ego. And the action that must be taken is to dissolve the ego so you reach those higher levels. You don't just get phenomena and glimpses, but you realize fully the truth. But it cannot be realized by an ego. So there has to be a willingness to give up the narratives, which as you say, are all illusion. But what you are receiving comes from the real, or you, it would not be able to even exist as an illusion, but it is there to take you out of the illusion. The truth is we are all God right now. There is nothing but God. But there's an illusion that there's an I who's separate from God and that there's evil in the world and all of that. It's not really the case. But to know that, 
and to be able to bring that into this dream field, to awaken all to the divine nature, requires the elimination of the illusion of the ego. Nothing else. One last one, just on the phenomenological plane, is um, so in meditation, um, and often I barely breathe at all. Mm -hmm. It's called the kumbhaka. Your breathing can slow down very, very slow and there can be long periods without needing to breathe. That's very uh, well known to yogis who can be buried underground for 40 days without needing to breathe. That's how long you can go, right? even longer. So don't be scared. The problem is you get afraid. Oh my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to stop breathing and die. It's not true. But I wonder if that these manifestations of phenomena that I have as a result of the lack of oxygen to the brain. No, no, no. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's a slowing down of the metabolism so the brain can flatline. Okay? It's not a, a question of not having oxygen. You have enough of that. If that runs out, you'll, you'll know it because it'll create permanent problems and it never happens that way. When you need to breathe, you will but it slows down the metabolism sufficiently that then the, the brain waves also slow down and shift. The, the respiration and the brain waves are connected. That's the whole theory of pranayama is based on that understanding. And, and once the brain waves flatline, that's when you receive the absolute presence. I'm just so grateful. This is such a good and beautiful teaching and so inspirational and um, kind of just led me into a level of uh, understanding that deeper than ever before, especially at, when we came to the end, we came to the song. Uh, like I grew up in a church that sang songs like that. Mm -hmm. And I rejected God and religion and everything that had to do as complete and total rebel, not by cesarean section, but um, and and I've just started really to finally understand the transconceptual nature of what it is that they would like to express in church that is never going to be understood well because it's facing in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So um, I really love this, this, the way that you kind of brought it full circle through the whole um, retreat and like why wouldn't everybody should be signing up to be in God's army. Um, it's an Air Force actually. <laughs> <laughs> that actually brings me to my question which came from the, I think the night of the wave function teaching, you said something, uh, hyperdimensional recognition is the origin of religion, and that's kind of where it started to roll around in my head, and then this morning you spoke about the fallen angels and slaying the demons, and in church they always, you might be demon possessed, but you're never like angel possessed, they never tell you you could maybe be an angel, so I appreciate you bringing that attention and I was wondering if that is the hyperdimensional recognition or if it's something it's the beginning more. of it mm -hmm. I always want to know about the more mm -hmm. well become the angel and then 
You'll be trained. Yeah. It was a question about obedience. Mm. Um, because it seems to me that obedience has different levels on the spiritual path. Mm -hmm. I mean, the ultimate obedience is silencing the mind forever, which is the death of the ego. But what are some of the, uh, I don't want to say intermediate, but beginning? Uh, to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Okay. Those would be... Well, if you're following the Dharma, then you are being obedient to the laws of goodness and the laws of the Ritta, the order, the cosmic order that has been established in order to bring us back to a pristine planetary uh, state of, of being. So uh, the, the Dharma is the key because it undoes the, uh, the karma of the ego and creates a whole new set of uh, self-disciplines that give one uh, willpower and strength. Every ego has become weak by, uh, by giving in to its tendencies for taking the easy way out and, and having immediate gratification and wasting time and diverting energy and all of that. And so if you really are following the Dharma, you're not going to do any of that anymore and you're going to learn to be one-pointed. And then it, it's a very easy step from there for the consciousness in a state of surrender to receive that presence that then silences the mind forever. But it also, in the meantime, even before it's become complete, it gives downloads, it gives inspirations, it gives guidance, it gives uh, many subtle kinds of assistance in life that are very useful, that, that uh, uh, will enable an increase of one's uh, precognitive abilities and one's accuracy and, uh, and the, the opening of synchronicities that wouldn't otherwise appear in your life and, uh, and many, many windows of opportunity that will open when you're in that state. So it's, uh, it's magical in the true and good sense. N not as someone who is trying to practice it and control it, but someone who is receiving the goodness of God as the response to one's willingness to follow the laws of God and to bring those laws back to govern the whole planet so that, that everyone is under the jurisdiction of that supreme goodness. It's the law of love. Can I ask a second question? It's about this, this hierarchy of angels, because you mentioned angels, archangels, spiritual, uh, warrior angels, and healing angels. Um, and then this morning you said that the fallen angels have to repair their wings so that they can fly even beyond, um, in the beyond or, or the trends. Mm -hmm. I don't remember how you said it. So there's the angel, let's say, um, level of consciousness is, I assume, chakra six, the light, and then there is a, the absolute. Uh, it's, it's a question, not a, an affirmation. So is there a hierarchy that... that uh, in the ascension in this angelic realm until one reaches the absolute? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
it, it depends on the, the degree of purification that you have achieved. The archangels have a much higher level of purity and of, therefore of wisdom and power than the angels do. And, and each of the two orders of the warriors and the healers have different specialities that will uh, be in accord with the kind of persona you've had uh, in, in the world. There are warriors and there are, and there are healers. There are some who are both, but it, it's, uh, there's, there's a split, just as there has been in history between the war chief and the high priest. You know, every uh, tribe would usually have both. In the Bible, it was Aaron and Moses, right? And Aaron failed as the high priest because he went back to the golden calf while Moses was up there. And so uh, he got fired and Moses took both positions. But it, it, there has always been these two t twin towers. That's what they referred to. And it became church and state, etc. But they were, were the Kshatriya and the Brahmins in the ancient uh, Indian uh, caste system. So you, you have the, uh, these uh, uh, different modalities of uh, being in the world. Some are, are meant to uh, and, and receive their fulfillment from maintaining order at, at the level of the social, uh, uh, let's say, the polity, the, the, the community and uh, are able to function as judges and as uh, governors and as the, the warriors who protect the, the territory of the tribe uh, and, uh, and offer assistance to others even outside of the tribe. But it, is a, uh, it requires a certain kind of nobility and courage that is very special. The healers have another kind of courage and of nobility, but it's much more of an inwardness that's based on love and, uh, and based on empathy and, and a, uh, a transmission of uh, that power of understanding that is able to release someone from the internal chains that might bind them to some pathological symptom. So there are two different types of powers. And not that one is higher than the other, but they're, they're both required and there are specialists in each, just as in the world. You have martial artists who are specialists and you have healers who are, are specialists in that. Uh, you can do both, but usually it's a totally different mindset. And so we have people here who very naturally fall into one of those two and sometimes in both of those. But uh, usually there's a... There's a a, a very distinct uh, way that one has chosen or is, is one's nature the, or either of these. But there are levels of purity and there are levels, uh, let's say, just like within a martial arts form, there's a hierarchy. The white belts and the blue belts and the brown belts and the black belts, right? There's a hierarchy. In the same way, the angels have a hierarchy of capacity that is uh, learned through that process of uh, slaying one's internal demons and getting the experience of working as warrior or healer and of, uh, of, of gaining ever more uh, power to channel that supreme uh, goodness and love and, and energy to uh, perform one's task 
and gradually one's given higher and higher levels and scope of action and uh, of management of uh, territory, including the whole planet uh, and the governance of, of those uh, regions of the cosmos. Everything is governed by these higher powers and as you rise in the ranks, you're given a, a post and a position and, and a function until you've graduated from that level. Okay, so yes, the, the, the hierarchy is already in place and uh, you know, it's, it's a question of where you want to be and to whom you wish to belong and serve and uh, at what level. Because the more you're willing to give and, uh, and sacrifice, then the more clear it is that you belong to a very high level of uh, closeness to God, let's say because of your, your own inherent goodness. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I have a couple of questions on choice. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about the, well, I appreciate you talking about the C-section in choice. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm wondering if that's where some of the, like I feel like I've always kind of at like, if I kind of go deeper and deeper into it, like, feelings of, like, feeling as if, like, my choice isn't good enough or it will work or something like that, or that choice will be taken away, or, and then, like, a lot of anxiety around indecisiveness, and do you think those sorts of things come from, the, like, that original... Um, I don't know. Possibly, but it was augmented by living in a family system that didn't have law or goodness or order, uh, and, uh, and the illegitimacy of the authority forced you to rebel against it, but you were too young and naive to be able to make accurate decisions, and you couldn't trust yourself in those conditions, and there was no one you could trust. And so that distrust of the system, of the, uh, the, the powers that were running the system, your parents and the, the, whole, uh, the whole system of the society that you were in led you to a, a mode of withdrawal and distrust that got internalized as self-distrust as well. And so, but now you're in a, a community of Dharma and you need to let go of that and the whole ego structure that came with it because it no longer defends you against being taken over by the other, which was its original purpose. But now you are taken over by that internal other that is the ego that keeps you in a confused and indecisive state, as you say, an inability to make the commitment to your own goodness. So then is like our choice... Are the words choice and decision the same, or do you choose to decide? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's the same. Which one? Well, you choose, and that is the making of a decision. It's the same thing? Mm-hmm. And, and a decision, the words decision is a cut. Mm -hmm. You cut with the past. It's finished. You've made a decision, now a new life begins. Mm -hmm. You don't look back. You can't go back. A decision is final. And then is that why there, it's, you said it's a truer freedom? Because then there is no choice? That's right. So it's almost like being without a choice in that way is more free? Of course. The angels that are obedient to God have no choice. They've given up choice. 
now they do whatever God tells them and, and they carry it out flawlessly, but it's a higher level of freedom and power as a result. What do you mean by freedom in that way? Well, God is freedom. How can you have any higher freedom than God consciousness? It's total freedom from karma. It's total freedom of infinite intelligence. Total freedom of transcendence, of limitation. Total goodness, benevolence, nobility. What more do you want with your freedom? Right? If you ask what's freedom for, wouldn't it be for reaching the highest level of goodness? So that requires then the commitment in, that is so full and complete that you become now choiceless awareness that has given up the freedom of the one who made the choice for the freedom of God consciousness to now choose everything for you. So then commitment is synonymous as well? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, get that. Uh, are the dark, dark forces or the hell's angel uh, are something uh, permanent? No. Uh, no. 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 The, the, uh, deal with that uh, always? It's just a... Uh, no, they will come to an end. All beings will be brought to the light at the end of Kali Yuga very soon. And there is no devils in Sat Yuga. And uh, only avatars. They, so. change, uh, they, they will change their, uh, their mind and... Uh, oh yeah, they, they will return to the light and uh, go into some uh, rehabilitation uh, <laughs> camps in the ethereal realms. Has this been uh, a useful discussion for people? Yeah. I hope so. Go ahead, last question. Uh, I don't know if it's a question, but just uh, thank you for the, the class tonight. I think um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and it's brought out a lot of feeling of um, of love, mm -hmm. because I think the like that term obedience, because of the illegitimacy of authority mm -hmm. in our day-to-day -day lives, you know, parents, mm -hmm. state, at every level, it creates this uh, sense of um, rebelliousness. Mm -hmm. But just reflecting on this um, idea of uh, of free will, mm -hmm. and, and that that God loves us so much to be able to give us the freedom to choose mm -hmm. to be obedient mm -hmm. is, uh, is very beautiful. But just mm -hmm. the, the love that comes mm -hmm. from that capacity to endure and for patience mm -hmm. and no matter you know, what we've done, we're all mm -hmm. capable of redemption. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you. That brings up the, um, the thought of Ramdas again who I think was almost unique in this uh, egocentric period of time because he was able to surrender to his guru. He became totally obedient to Neem Karoli Baba. And he recognized that his guru knew a lot more than he did. Uh, he could read his mind, he could do, he could do many miraculous uh, things, or at least they would happen in his presence. And, and Ramdas, in that state of awe, recognized that if he would attune to the consciousness that this fellow was resonating at, he would rise, and that he had a, a much better chance 
by uh, choosing a, an attunement to and a loyalty to that being than trying to do it on his own. And so his way of giving up the ego, it was an intermediary way, but it's traditional that you become a disciple to one who can guide you to then that state where you have become yourself uh, autonomous because you've, you've uh, freed yourself from the ego by following the instructions and the Dharma, and then you are able to then have the same guru function and uh, all of the uh, attainment that goes along with that. But that tradition of guru-disciple has been cut and been lost, and because there are so many false uh, gurus and so many uh, uh, traps for the unwary and so much uh, attack upon that whole form of relationship, of spiritual apprenticeship, uh, that uh, that that system has been destroyed, unfortunately, and that leaves people without an ability to find a mentor and a guide, and and, and uh, they feel like there are too many voices saying no, don't surrender, don't give up, to, don't be brainwashed, don't be under the control of someone else, and and so all of that has uh, has caused the destruction of what was actually good and pure in that tradition as well as, uh, as leading then to uh, the takeover of religion by those who were really charlatans and, and in it for the money and all of that. So it, it has, uh, has left a, a real uh, a vacuum uh, in the place of, uh, of traditional sources of wisdom that you could use to build on to attain uh, freedom and, uh, and liberation.
wisdom, God of this. God of love, God of wisdom, God of this. God of love, God of wisdom, God of this. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti podcast. For more information on programs and retreats, click on the calendar section of our website, www.satyoga.org. Our work is made possible by the generous support of our listeners, viewers, and members. To make a donation, please visit the donate page of our website. We thank you for your support in our mission to share this timeless wisdom with the world. Namaste.